Young Jaguar enthusiasts and what the future holds with Scarlet Orr. JECpodcast.com Hello, I'm Wayne Scott. Welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, episode 61. To be precise, hope you keep him well as we enter into September and autumn is upon us. It's a very busy weekend for car events. As I record this, there is, of course, Jaguars at Gaydon kicking off at the British Motor Museum down there in Warwickshire. There is, of course, Salon Privé, where we have a whole host of E-types on display and Jaguar Enthusiast Club members on display over the weekend. There's the Bewley Auto Jumble happening down on the south coast. And still plenty to look forward to with Goodwood Revival and, of course, the NEC Classic Motor Show, an exciting announcement for which is coming in our feature interview this week with Scarlett Orr, who is leader, yes, leader, of the Young Jaguar Enthusiast movement within the JEC. Looking forward to talking to Scarlett, but first, let's talk you through how Harewood Hill Climb went a couple of weeks ago. It was a phenomenal event, and an event that was marred a little bit, to be honest, by the weather. We had hoped to bring you all sorts of podcast interviews from the paddock, <laughs> and trackside but the weather was just atrocious and we basically couldn't get our recording gear out to record anyone it was horrendous there were a few breaks especially early on in the day the sunshine did peer around from the clouds long enough to start drying the track out but uh, by lunchtime the rain was monumental it has to be said but it didn't put off our hardy track day enthusiasts they were out there and using the hill to its full advantage uh, we started quite early in the morning as often these days do the cars piled in from about 9am some stunners there as well a beautiful special edition f-type right the way through to some really interesting track day weapons actually one particular car caught my eye a jaguar s-type mid-60s version on mini lights and a roll cage and very well prepared and uh, also a big shout to the guys who had taken a 420 up the hill climb as well and not holding back might i add and also a special mention to those in the c-type replica who did the whole day without any roof or wet weather gear they must have been very soggy by the time they got home but one thing was for sure everyone who turned up everyone who got involved had a fantastic time and we've had brilliant feedback from all of those who braved the weather and enjoyed the longest hill climb in the UK, Harewood Hill Climb. Should we do it again next year? Well, let us know. Tell us what you think. jecpodcast.co.uk is the place to go. Click on the contact form. Give us your feedback on Harewood. How was it for you? Have you dried yourself out yet? We'd love to hear more from you. I personally, I would love to see it come back. I had a fantastic day, not only watching all of the Jaguars going up the hill. I enjoyed helping people around the hill and giving some advice. It was great to hear Colin Porter giving a really comprehensive driver's briefing as well. We also have Jim Johnson there present, who was here on this podcast just a few episodes ago, giving us tips on how to drive the hill climb. And it was on one of his coaching sessions with me that I had a slight mishap in that, uh, well, let's just say we launched off the start line a little bit too quickly and uh, I think something gave way underneath the car and bent my rear trailing arms. Now, I hasten to add, I wasn't in a Jaguar. I was, in fact, in an old Triumph, but uh, 
But for all those concerned messages I've had from other people on the hill from the day, the car is now fixed and has been back out on the road at events ever since, uh, with reinforcement underneath is all I'll add to that. A brilliant day had by all. If you want to see all the pictures, keep your eyes peeled. It'll be all in the October edition of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine. Editor Nigel Thorley was present on the day. He's got some absolutely stonking photos of the cars going up Hayward Hill Climb. Uh, in fact, he's also got some brilliant photos of all of the smiles beaming out of the windscreens as people took to the hill as well. Uh, so keep your eye out for that in the next edition of the Club magazine, Jaguar Enthusiast and also a great thanks to everyone who made the day possible all of those volunteers on the day that uh, signed people in checked tickets the caterers as well we had some lovely food for lunch lasagna oh yes oh we weren't slumming it and we even had roast pork as well it was all going on let's hope we can do it again in 2022 we'll do it again if you support it so let us know if you'd like to uh, see us come back at Harewood Hill Climb for another track day event in 2022. This weekend, as I mentioned, is Salon Privé weekend, and we have all sorts of different club cars there on display. Of course, the winner from Concourse at the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage is also competing there this weekend, and hopefully we can bring you news of what happened at Salon Privé on next week's episode. And just a final mention, of course, that we are still taking bookings for our superb track day at Castle Coombe, happening on Tuesday, the 5th of October. You can find all the details of that and other events as well that you can get involved with at jec.org.uk forward slash events. Right, Tom had some drama when he went to Cadwell Park with the next round of the JEC Race Championship. He'll be telling us all about that in just a moment. Also, our interview with Scarlett Orr after we induct another Hall of Fame member now from the world of motorsport with Richard West next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, our inductee into the Hall of Fame is well and truly back in the Jaguar camp. We've covered all sorts of personalities from all walks of motorsport life, but now we are back to Jaguar and a Jaguar Formula One driver, no less. There can be not many, really, that we can be talking about, Richard, but this time it is, of course, Eddie Irvine. So where did it all begin for Eddie? Well, it started out, um, as we all do, but on a particular date of November the 10th, 1965, when he was born. Uh, into Northern Ireland, into a family with a sister, Sonia. Uh, his dad, scrap um, dealer, had a scrapyard there, and mum, Kathleen, also a great supporter of the family. And um, he started his, his very early career. He wanted to race motorcycles, but Eddie is, uh, is, was, and is an incredible character, full of life and incredibly talented when he puts his mind to it. And his dad thought it was all a bit too dangerous on motorcycles, so in return for some labour at the weekends, his dad funded his early racing career in Formula Ford, and that's where it all started. Well, I don't know much about the early days of Eddie Irving, but what I do know is that he was really discovered through a competition and uh, a story very similar to Tiffany Dell, actually. Uh, a competition to find the fastest driver, and that fastest driver actually was Eddie. Marlborough take a lot of credit for this. The, the late John Hogan, who we've talked about before, John was Mr. Marlborough, effectively. He was the man who uh, came up with the Marlborough World Championship team at one point. Virtually every driver in Formula One and every other form of motorsport had a Marlborough badge on them for the cigarette company. And John and his colleagues came up with this idea that uh, whenever 
they would spot talent lower down the ranks. They would put together a Marlborough paid test session and some of the great luminaries like Dick Bennett from West Surrey Racing, a man who obviously ran Ayrton Senna in his early career, Ron Dennis, other people, Mike Earl from the Onyx F1 fame, they would come together and they would watch these guys. And in fact, it was the winter of 87 when Marlborough organised a test uh, following the British Formula 3 season. And that was where Irvine was really run. And uh, his helmet was very similar in design to that of Ayrton Senna. And it was rather strange seeing that famous helmet back in a Formula 3 car in those days. But he shone. And it was with that that he was immediately noticed by a number of teams, in particular, uh, of course, Eddie Jordan, his fellow countryman. Well, he had JJ Leto, I know, as a uh, teammate in Formula 3000, a name that he mm. would later meet again on the Circuit de la Sarthe at uh, Le Mans. Mm. And he competed mm. in a Toyota in the early 90s, didn't he? He did indeed. I mean, when you look back, if you go right back to his early career, early on, and I think it was 84, he won his first ever Formula Ford race back at Brandsatch. Um, he raced for the famous Van Diemen Mark and uh, won the SO Formula Ford Series, the Renault, uh, sorry, the RAC Formula Ford Series, and then the Formula Ford Festival. So he had that great start, and of course, that moved him up into Formula 3000. And throughout that time, he, he was in a lot of people's eyes because he was one of those drivers who he had a very cheeky grin has a very cheeky grin and was always out there looking for a deal and at the same time as i said earlier when he put his mind to it he was an extremely fiery and feisty competitor and a very very strong racer and he did race alongside some great people i mean in group c he raced alongside the late roland ratzenberger in uh, his time during the jordan formula 3000 team he was regularly beating Heinz Held Prince and a later day Williams driver and a driver by the name some remember may remember of Emmanuel Naspetti. These were guys who all were super competitive. And then he was part of the Brat Pack. You know, he was there with the likes of Mikasalo, Johnny Herbert and a number of others who frequently created havoc wherever they went in the junior formulas. It's amazing how many big names came through that little Van Diemen team, isn't it? Based at Snetterton in Norfolk, uh, it saw Mark Webber come through the same route, Dan Weldon, of course, mm. uh, the modern-day mm. Mike Conway. And uh, amazing, tiny little team, Duckham sponsorship, of course, in the late 70s, early 80s. Still amazing just how many huge names came through that team. And I do remember when, just about when Eddie Irvine turned up, in Formula One, he was in the Jordan and he was partnering Rubens Barrichello, wasn't he? Yeah, he was indeed. Rubens actually only mentioned him the other day. Rubens is frequently on Instagram and he does live chats with his global fan base. And he was there and uh, talking about his days with Eddie. You're right, 1993, they teamed up. Um, he, he, he made an impact straight away when he joined Jordan, having um, scored some points straight away. But of course, in 1993, there was also that remarkable incident at the Japanese Grand Prix when he actually unlapped himself on one yellow-helmeted certain Ayrton Senna, which Ayrton was absolutely furious about and went on live television immediately after the race and complained in the press conference that this new young upstart was a danger and was, you know, should have showed more respect. <laughs> And as things sort of got out of hand in the end, Ayrton got himself worked up into such a in such a state. He uh, he wandered off back down to the uh, the motorhome, and before you knew where you were, uh, he and Eddie were at each other's throats. And uh, reputedly, uh, Ayrton swung you know a punch at Eddie and called him all sorts of names under the sun. But it was pretty obvious at that point that we we had a new James Hunt on the block almost. And uh, Eddie certainly lived up to that reputation throughout his Formula One career. 
Well, a phenomenal race at Le Mans just a couple of weeks ago from recording this as the Toyota team took the first win of the hypercar mm. era, really. And, of course, Eddie Irvine, that year when he joined Jordan, was also at Le Mans racing at Toyota, laying the pavement, really, for the modern-day victories. But it was at Ferrari in Formula One that he really had his big moment in the sun, wasn't it? It was. That, just going back to that Le Mans um, race for a second in that season, um, he drove the Group C car alongside uh, Toshio Suzuki and uh, Menasori Sakea, and they finished fourth overall. And, uh, you know, a lot was learnt in those early days. And Eddie actually enjoyed sports car racing. You know, he was a, he was a great team player. Um, yeah, the Ferrari thing, he, he was at Jordan for 94. And again, he was, you know, partnered by Rubens Barrichello. He was quite controversial during that time. He got himself involved in a bit of a four-car pile-up and got a one-race ban and a 10-grand fine. But Eddie, being Eddie, decided to appeal it, and they increased it to a three-race ban. <laughs> and his seat was filled by Guri Suzuki uh, and Andrea de Cesaris for the races in Monaco and the San Marino. And, of course, he also uh, was replaced you know, with, by the Pacific Grand Prix that year in Aida. Um, he came back to the Spanish Grand Prix in '94. Um, he also garnered further controversy. I mean, later that year, he had a coming together with Damon Hill. Um, and he was warned a similar further incident with see super license revokes. But, you know, in typical Eddie's style, it didn't particularly bother him. Um, and outside of Formula One, that year, he went back to Le Mans again, of course, and uh, as a substitute for Roland, who had died at Imola. And he drove alongside Mario, Mar Mario Martini and Jeff Krosnoff. So, again one of the later day, latter day drivers who was prepared to go and do things. But as you rightly say, he stayed with uh, Jordan throughout 95. But then, of course, in 96, there he was in a Ferrari. He'd signed a two-year extension to his contract to stay at Jordan. But I think I'm right in saying that Ferrari actually bought him out of that contract because they could see that they had a really strong guy on their hands. And there he was at Ferrari. And all of a sudden, I think he was the last British driver actually to be in a Ferrari. Um, right up until the, the, the present day. But as soon as he got in there, he did a good job. And uh, he was there alongside double world champion Michael Schumacher and immediately started scoring points. So it was a good move for him. Mm. Well, he very nearly took the championship, as you say. But in the year 2000, he arrived at a team very close to our hearts. He arrived in a Jaguar. But for some reason, and I recall this very vividly from the time, there was a lot of hope, there was a lot of expectation placed on that Jaguar team because, of course, it was the former Ford Stewart team. There'd been a lot of great talent pulled together in that team. Yet it seemed mm. like Eddie mm. Irvine couldn't keep the car on the track for the first season. No, we've talked a little bit about the Jaguar F1 programme before and I think for those listeners who are not familiar with it, 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 it had a number of people at the helm. Obviously, the late Nicky Lauda was there, IndyCar specialist and champion Bobby Rahal also was there for a short period, you know, in a team role. And then it went through a series of um, management changes. Eddie had, as you rightfully said, almost won the championship with Ferrari. You know, he'd started off his Ferrari, final Ferrari year by winning the Australian Grand Prix. He was in a very strong position. And really, and rightfully, I think he should have become world champion. It's a shame that he didn't. But when he arrived at Jaguar... Um, Jackie Stewart at the time said he'd been in, in the shadow of the number one driver, meaning, of course, Michael Schumacher. But the team never quite seemed to gel. I mean, in Jackie Stewart's hands, when it was the Stewart Grand Prix team and then became Ford and then morphed into Jaguar, it, was, it, it had been through so many management changes that, to be frank, I think what had happened is it had unsettled 
the team because we've we've talked a lot before about some very competent leaders in motorsport. And Jaguar at that time was going through a number of polit- political changes at the top of the tree. And when guys like Nicky Lauder and Bobby Rahal come and go, it, it sends a tremor through the organisation. And I just don't think that it had the focus that it needed to do the job, despite the budget and the fact that it had a good sponsorship portfolio at that time. Well, that first season saw him spin off. I think he collided with a number of drivers at points as well. And then, of course, he had some time off because he had appendicitis. Then there was a big falling out, wasn't there, between Bobby Rahal and Eddie Irvine because I think he knew he'd underperformed. And I seem to remember there being a big challenge. Well, basically, you know, uh, if you can sack me, and I know you want to sack me, but you can only do it if I don't achieve this, this and this. And and in actual fairness and credit to Irvine, he did go out and achieve great things following that. But there was always that sense that you got the feeling Jaguar wanted to get rid of him. And I think they even tried to sell him back to Jordan at one point, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Bobby, Bobby, I'm reputedly entered into discussions with Jordan to try and get you know Eddie back in the team, and there was quite a lot of money talked about at the time around that deal. I think Eddie has always, in his racing career at least, Eddie's always been slightly rebellious, and I think at the time, with Bobby and his predecessors and those who followed him trying to settle the you know the calming oil on the water, troubled waters of Jaguar F1. I think that there was this big push to try and really get the team back to a really level playing field. And of course it didn't work. Um, but again, you know, that ended up with Bobby's efforts backfiring on him when he was, he was effectively removed from that position and Nicky Lauda was brought in as well. Um, but again, you know, Nicky hadn't been there very long and Eddie got involved in a, in a clash with uh, Bertie um, at the Belgian Grand Prix. And really, I think, you know, you have to look at it and say to yourself, OK, he remained there for 2002. He was partnered by Pedro De La Rosso, a driver I know extremely well, having worked with Pedro Arrows and also you know, helped with his management when he's changed from one manager to Julian Jacobi's team many years ago. And really, it just ended up being a very frustrating end to it. And Eddie being the type of character he is, when he really thought about it, I think he thought, you know what, it's time to actually walk away from this and concentrate on my business did some stuff in television, moderately successfully, but his real skill is in his property dealing deals. And uh, he's become a very, he was a very wealthy man through Formula One, being a very highly paid driver. But in these later years, he's become a very, very successful property developer globally. And I believe spends a lot of his time based in Florida, where he runs his property empire from. It's interesting, is it? We often talk about drivers that go one of two ways after their career. They either hang around motorsport in very senior roles, as so many of them do, or or race in club motorsport or within historics, or they just wash their hands of it entirely. And you get the feeling that Eddie had his day, he shut the door, and it's a door he'll never reopen again. No, he had a look at a couple of teams. He looked at purchasing Minardi. I think at one point he even looked at putting a consortium together to try and buy Jordan Grand Prix. But... Having said all of that, as you rightfully say, he, he got himself in a bit of hot water for riding a scooter through London with no licence and uh, I think no insurance at the time, which got him a bit of a fine. But having said that, um, in 2009, he did uh, demonstrate that wonderful, wonderful Ferrari 312 at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And one can never say never with Eddie. If there was something there that appealed to him, he's the type of character who would come and do it. But having said that, Formula One was a great place with him. I remember walking into the paddock 
at the inaugural US Grand Prix with him striding down the paddock towards me with Bobby and a couple of others. And the only thing he said to me when he walked past is, have you got any deals for me? (laughs) (laughs) And he was always one looking for a deal. And I suspect that is why he's become such a successful wheeler dealer in the property world in which he now operates. Well, he won four Grand Prix during his career, 26 podiums. He had a class win at Le Mans and uh, finished uh, second in that Toyota in 1993. He is our latest inductee into the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Podcast Hall of Fame, Eddie Irvin, 55 now. To the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'm very excited to introduce you all to someone who's going to be very important for the future of the JEC and indeed the future of the family we all enjoy, the worldwide Jaguar community. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Scarlett Orr. Hiya, Scarlett. Hello. You are the leader of the Young Jaguar Enthusiast Club, which is the part of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club that we launched a couple of years ago at the NEC Classic Mode Show that caters, I guess, for kind of under 30s, but really the age doesn't really matter. It's more about young people coming together and enjoying Jaguars, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely being about it's definitely about being young at heart rather than, than the actual number. And we're probably more informal than the main club so I mean, you introduced me as a leader but it's just kind of we want everyone to get involved so anyone's welcome to join really that's it it's all about the fun and that's what we love about young members branches uh youth groups call them what you will of car clubs they're always just about the fun and a little bit of drinking now and then i find <laughs> um, and i'm sure the young jaguar enthusiast uh, is no different so uh let's go back Scarlet to when we launched it obviously you've had a bit of a false start really haven't you because of covid and the pandemic you haven't been able to run some of the events that you had got planned um but what's the idea here uh, is it i guess to give the jaguar enthusiast club a group within it f- to which young people can identify i suppose that's kind of the general gist isn't it yeah that's exactly it and what i think is fantastic about having a youth group in the jaguar enthusiast club is the fact that it's the enthusiast club. So it's not an owner's club or anything like that. You don't even have to have a Jaguar. It's just about having a passion for Jaguars. So when I was just involved in in the very start of this, I didn't have a Jaguar, but that was not a barrier in the slightest. I love Jaguars, so it just seemed a very natural and great step to take. So, yeah, it's just all about any young people who are enthusiastic about Jaguars. If you own a Jaguar, brilliant. If you want to own a Jaguar, brilliant. If your mum or dad or your grandparents own a Jaguar, then that's great. Just anyone with a passion for it is welcome. It's often a barrier that uh, all ages have against sort of joining a car club is that they think you have to own a car in order to be a part of it. But of course, actually, it's much better if you join the club first before you get the car because, well, then you find out all of the information and you get a lead on nice cars within the club that are coming up for sale before they get advertised. It's big benefits to being sort of in the community before you have a car, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And especially the JEC, everyone's incredibly friendly, incredibly knowledgeable, really helpful. So just because everyone's so passionate, it means there'll definitely be someone who can help you or advise you 
or just have a chat about Jags. It's, it's a really nice environment and yeah, it's definitely helpful to be in a club even if you don't have a Jaguar. So where does your passion for cars and motoring come from, Scarlett? Where did it all begin for you? Well, it began with my dad because he has, he was mad on cars for his entire life. And um, when I was a baby, I got dragged around car shows with him. And then eventually it turned out that I quite liked that. Um, and so I decided that I was going to make that my hobby, my passion, uh, cars and motorsport. So, yeah, and I have a particular love for British cars and classic cars. And it seemed like a great opportunity with the Jack Enthusiast Club to start the youth group, really. Brilliant. And of course, you've taken it one step further than that, haven't you? Because not only is it your passion in terms of a pastime and a hobby and, and what you do with your spare time and, you know, that sort of family introduction that you had as, as a, a youngster there, but it's your future career. Now, you have got a really, really exciting degree that you're doing at university. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I'm studying aeronautics and astronautics engineering at the University of Southampton. And um, I'm currently taking a year out to do an internship because um, I was fortunate enough to be able to get an internship with Aston Martin Formula One team as an aerodynamicist. So I really hope that I can have a career in it because it's certainly what I want to do. Um, because, yeah, my passion for motorsport is so great. And I thought, well, why not make a career out of that? Well, you know, over the past few episodes on the JC podcast, we've talked to a lot of ladies here, actually, and it's always great to have the the females on because I'm all for one for supporting women in motorsport, absolutely. We've had a lot of drivers on, but very rare that we get an engineer on, and it's fantastic to hear that not only are you training to be an engineer, but you're actually doing it in your internship. You've got to be living the dream, haven't you, Scarlett, working at Aston Martin? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it's it's definitely stressful, but it's it's everything you would imagine. It's You walk to lunch and you walk past full-size F1 cars being prepared for the next race, and you're right across the road from Silverstone, so... I mean, today I went out in my lunch break and was looking at McLaren F1s and things like that, just to go around the track because that's just what happens where you work. So it's, it's so exciting and it, it really is living the dream. Amazing. And uh, I understand that you're now living in digs in one of my old haunts, Northampton. So uh, I'll have to come over <laughs> and show it. you a good night out in Northampton. I think there's still a good Definitely. night out to be had, just about. Yeah, there's <laughs> always a good night out to be had. <laughs> where would you like to be in, say, five, ten years' time? What's, what's the aim here? Well, I have two things that I really want to do in my career. I really want to become accomplished enough as an aerodynamicist to be able to do trackside aero. And I would love to do at least a year going around with the actual trackside race team um, so I can see however many they have, 21-odd races in a year, 21 different countries. That's one goal. And my other goal, because I have a massive passion, probably even more so than F1, for Le Mans and endurance racing. And it's been my goal for a very long time to design part of a car that wins Le Mans so that, that's my ultimate dream really you just gave me goosebumps there Scarlett because as you know <laughs> it's been a part of my life for well nearly 20 years now since I was uh, a young lad going with my dad and uh, enjoying those early races of the late 90s to having worked there doing PR and media support for teams myself so um, yeah phenomenal family around endurance racing and have you ever been to Le Mans have you experienced the race firsthand Scarlett? I haven't been to the 24 hours, but I've been to the Le Mans Classic, which was which was also incredible because um, I have a massive passion for classic cars. My favourite car of all time 
is a Jaguar D-type and watching them going around Le Mans at two o'clock in the morning was just the most incredible thing I think I've ever seen. So yeah, I love that, even though I've never gone to the actual 24 hours. Um, I had the great privilege of doing uh, some PR work for a couple of historic teams that raced at Le Mans Classic in 2014-2016. And I remember going up with one of the camera guys to go and get some footage from Arnage Corner. And it's quite dark up there. And as the cars come off Indianapolis up to Arnage, it's a very, very heavy braking zone. There's virtually a 90-degree right that the cars take. And I got there just in time for the D-types to come flying through. And oh. you feel like... It was in the time before they opened out Arnage Corner. It's sort of uh, opened out now, and they took down a lot of the trees. But at that time, you felt like you were in the forest there, and these fire-breathing yeah. D types came roaring out of the trees, and you saw the brake discs glowing bright red before they shot off down towards Porsche curves, and you just got a sense of the heroics, really, of those original yeah, drivers in the fifties. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's what gets us going yeah. even now. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> I think what we've done there is uh, we've planned together, Scarlett, inadvertently, uh, <laughs> one of the holidays and trips away for the Young Jaguar Enthusiast Club because I think we've all <laughs> yep. got to get you to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. You heard it here first, Young Dragon Enthusiast trip to Le Mans. Yeah, it's on. It's on the cards, and I'm very happy yep. to act as tour guide and uh, chief beer selector <laughs> on this trip. <laughs> uh, it's got to be done, and I think, uh, you know, especially with the career path that you want to take, uh, seeing that race up close and experiencing it yeah. is something that you really must do. So, uh, oh, it's exciting stuff. I think everyone's really jealous listening to you talk, Scarlett, <laughs> about this amazing uh, career of yours. Uh, in terms of the Young Jaguar Enthusiast Club then, what's the plan going forward from here? Obviously, you're now out of COVID. We can all meet up and have parties. So what's on the agenda? So we want to be involved with as much as we can. So we're always open to these suggestions of, from anyone of things that they might want us to get involved with but right now because we're we're still very small so it's just about growing really um so getting the word out there connecting with us on instagram facebook anything like that um and just building up a community so we can start going to some more events and just having a great time really so give us the socials then tell us how we can get in touch if someone's listening to this podcast and want to get in touch with you and and get involved how do they do that yeah, so um, you can search on Instagram or Facebook for Young Jaguar Enthusiasts and you'll find us through there. Um, feel free to shoot us a DM or a message and say hi. We're always up for a chat. Um, and yeah, so maybe we might expand socials a bit later, but for now they seem like a good place to start. So yeah, we'll, we'll find us on there. And who have you had come through the door already? What sort of cars are people driving in the Young Jaguar Enthusiasts? Well, there's quite a few accessible Jags. Um so I've had some great chats with a lot of people through through the Instagram page, and we've had people with oh, what we had. We've had people with XFs. I've had a couple with XJSs, XKs. There's a few guys out in America who've got some really cool. Like they've modded their Jags and they look amazing. Um, yeah, we've we've had everything really. We've had from from really classic up to fairly modern. It's it's been really good. It was funny because I remember when you and I were at the NEC Classic Mode show and Tom was there as well and we launched this thing and the press made a big thing of it. We had articles and announcements and it was all very good. And people came up to me and said, you know, Wayne, how on earth are you going to make that happen within Jaguars? How can young people afford Jaguars? Well, 
The funny thing is, probably out of all of the club's young members groups that I've been involved with, it's probably the quickest and easiest to start because actually there are so many accessible models and not just accessible from the point of view of you can actually afford one, but also you can use them as a daily driver. X-Types, for yeah. example, are brilliant cars to just use every day. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think the reason for that, so I've very recently gone through sort of getting your first car, insuring, and then just becoming a little bit older where insurance starts becoming vaguely affordable. And I think what it is, is that um, if you're interested in having what I would call an interesting car, um, so anything like a Jagger, anything like that, there comes a point where as soon as it's cheap enough for you to actually insure it, it doesn't actually really matter what the car is. Um, so I have a passion for MGs as well. And it's hard for young people to insure them. So it's quite expensive to get insured on an MGB or a ZR or something like that. But by the time it becomes cheap enough, things like X-Types and some of the older XS become pretty much the same price. And they're an incredibly attractive option. And they're very, very nice cars to have as a second car or something like that. So it's definitely doable. It is hard, admittedly, if you were, say, 17, 18, getting a car. But by the time you're 22, 23, it's definitely doable. It's a really good point. That's it's actually something I'd never really thought of in that sense. And you're right. If you're going to be paying, I don't know, what the average uh, insurance premium is now, two thousand pound a year, something like that, you might as well yeah. have something nice for that money than be banging around in yeah. an old Fiesta. <laughs> yeah, because there is there's a lot of cars where there's hardly any difference between something very ordinary and something a little bit special. There's not a lot of price in it sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, if you look at cars like the XJ60s, XJ40s, there is a lot of car there for not a lot of money. Oh, yeah. You can still pick them up for a couple of grand, um, yeah. especially the X300s. And actually, they're a relatively affordable insurance group because they're very safe cars in terms of insurance yeah. profile. They don't have a lot of accidents, do they? No, no, they don't. I suppose that is, that is one of the benefits of um, having so many people driving them and looking after them for so long that it does give Jags quite a good name when it comes to insurance. Well, this is a great thing. The opportunity we have here is to really get together the next generation of Jaguar fans, those people that are going to take the club forward into the next 20, 30 years. It's really exciting because these, as we've just explained, these are cars that they can afford, they can use every day, and just building the community now is what it's all about. And I know that uh, I've certainly introduced you to some of the more established young members groups in other clubs. I know you're already a member of the MG Car Club's young members branch, so you've got a good feeling for what's happening in other clubs there. What's the ambition with this? Where would you like it to be in a couple of years' time? In a couple of years' time, all I want is for a community of young Jaguar enthusiasts to exist and to go to shows and to have links with TR Youth, MG Car Club Young Members, whoever, and, yeah, just enjoy Jags, enjoy having a good time. It just should be sociable and fun and no judgment on what Jag you do or don't have. Just, just a really nice community to be in, really. Absolutely. Well, I know from the other young members groups, and I founded one of them in one of the other clubs, it has given me a huge load of friendships, and those friendships will last for the rest of my life. And some of the amazing memories 
Some of the amazing hangovers as well, I have to be honest, that I've had <laughs> over the, over that time have been brilliant. And let's hope we can replicate some of that brilliant feeling. And... Yeah, we're definitely, aiming, we're definitely aiming for the hangovers. Too. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, all good memories come from great parties, I always say. So, uh, yeah, we look forward to getting, being, getting involved in some of them. And I hope... Uh, that you won't tell me I'm too old to come and get involved with some of them as well, Scott. Oh, absolutely not. That's Young good. at heart, that's what we always say. <laughs> that's it. Well, it is a very exciting time because here we are talking to you in September, just a couple of months away from the NEC Classic Motor Show. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is back and it is the big season closer for the classic car world. And... This is an exciting moment for you, Scarlett, and for Tom and for the rest of the young members, guys, there, because you have a stand. It's going to be your debut at a show with your own young enthusiast stand. What's the plans? Well, firstly, we were incredibly excited, and I think it's brilliant because it was only a couple of years ago that it was decided at that very event to start this. And we've got our stand next to the main JEC stand, so we're really establishing that really nice tie there. And we're going to have some really great accessible Jaguars on our stand owned by young people and you can come up to the stand and see this car costs this person this much money it costs them this much to insure and they're this old you can do it too and that's what it's all about really it's about having a great chat with people talking about Jaguars seeing it's doable and yeah hopefully attracting some members and getting this community really off the ground brilliant can't wait can't wait to see it can't wait to see what cars you have lined up uh also can't wait to help you with the evening entertainment uh we'll make sure that you're suitably oh, yeah. <laughs> hung over following mornings Excellent. and Excellent. i suppose the last question as well is uh you can't be a young enthusiast group without some merch so is that in the pipeline no. as well it is definitely in the pipeline and all being well we should have some merch definitely by the nec show so yeah come along to the stand and you can show your support for us and hopefully join in and get yourself a t-shirt and hopefully as much as much as i can get the jc to let me have <laughs> so yeah well we're all behind you scarlet the jc is very supportive of this and really wants oh, yeah, to help you out fantastic. it's been a great club isn't it to help you get this started oh yeah it's been brilliant just you ask for anything and they find a way it's fantastic and the support is just unwavering it's so good so remind us of those socials again and how we can get in touch if we want to get involved yeah, so just search Young Jag Enthusiasts on Instagram or Facebook and you can just give us a follow or like our Facebook page or if you want to say hello, send us a DM or a message on Facebook and we'll get back to you. Can't wait to see the lineup. can't wait to see the cars, can't wait to see the very beginning of an exciting new initiative within the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. You'll be able to spot Scarlett at the NEC. She's the one with the really, really, really long hair. <laughs> <laughs> Scarlett Orr, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. That's a pretty early start this morning up at Cadwell because uh, we've had our XJR6 called up for scrutineering this morning. So... Um, with the COVID rules now slightly relaxing, they've actually decided they're going to be doing spot checks on cars. Um, so just looks like they've taken a five out of our race and five out of all the others as a complete random spot check for scrutineering. So 
since COVID, we've been scrutinizing the cars ourselves and doing an online form. Um, and now they're obviously checking up on that and making sure that all the cars are complying to rules rather than us just saying they are. So um, Dan's going to take the car down to scrutineer and make sure there's no issues with that this morning. Um, and then we're out at about 10 o'clock for qualifying. So um, car setup was obviously all done at the, the test sessions we've done earlier in the week. So I'm hoping that we can just get out there, get a few laps under our belt, warming up the tyres and then go for gold and try and get a lap in as quickly as possible. It should be fairly quiet out on track. Um, there's only 14 of us qualifying, so um, the grid numbers are a little bit low this time. Um, that does sometimes happen with Cadwell, being that it's pretty much pretty far for everyone. So um, it's quite a commitment to get to this circuit. And with it all being on one day, um, it's it sometimes put people off with the travel distance just for a one day event, if that makes sense, rather than breaking it down over the weekend. And it is also on the bank holiday Monday, so I can only assume that's why the numbers are low. But, but still, we've got James Ram. Um, Colin's car is here, actually, but um, Michael Holt's uh, actually driving that one. So that'll be interesting to see how he gets on in the uh, in his car. Um, I, feel, I believe Colin's away this weekend, so numbers are a little bit low. Um, obviously, we've still got our two biggest competitors here um, in contention for the championship. Um, so Tom Lempful is leading still. He's out in his XJS, although he's in a different class, he still could pip us for the overall win. And same with Mike Seaborn, who's in class B. So it's all to play for. We need the points. We really, really need a good result here the weekend. Um, so I want to get out there, get a good qualifier in. And also I'm a little bit nervous because we've got Matthew back in his XJR6 as well. And I think he's feeling the same. Um, obviously we tested it, car was absolutely flying. So I'm really hoping he gets a good result and just gets some laps under his belt. I'm sure it's going to feel a little bit different to the XJ40 he was racing previously, which is ours, which is a Class A car, and now he's obviously in the, the fully modified Class D car. So um, I really hope he has a good run out and gets a good result as well, which will build his confidence back up. So um, yeah, weather-wise, it's looking pretty overcast here. There's the weather apps are saying no sign of rain, but when we tested here, we had one minute it was absolutely perfectly dry, next minute it just came over completely black and showered. So. Um, and one of the things I did notice, it was really, really slippy in the wet. It went from having, or the car went from being really, really dominant and loads of pace to just nearly undrivable as soon as a bit of water on the track. It was just no grip anywhere. So I'm going to have to watch out for that and just be careful um, if it does shower, that it does get very slippy quickly. Sometimes, you, even when it is raining, you still have a fair amount of grip before the water actually um, proves a bit of a problem but here it was nearly instant so that's something I need to watch out for but obviously got qualifying at 10 so um, we'll just check all the fuel and stuff and uh, and see what we can do. So qualifying didn't quite go to plan but we did end up getting in a really good lap which has put us in a pretty good position for race one start so um, annoyingly I got two laps um, straight away really clear getting heat into the tyres and as soon as I then started pushing it for the lap three um, to try and get a quick lap in, um, the car straight away at high RPM had a misfire. So I had to cruise back round to the pits. Luckily, Dan was in the pits there waiting. Um, we pulled the bonnet off, um, worked out which cylinder it was that was misfiring it. It was coming from cylinder one. So we just pulled the coil out, changed the plug quickly, could see that the plug was fouled, went straight back out, and unfortunately, the misfire was still there. So I had to do another lap to come back into the pits. Um, in doing that, Dan pulled out the coil. Um, luckily, we had a spare in the bag, put another coil in. And as soon as I went out, the car was still misfit firing. So um, looking at the time, I only had enough time to do one complete lap. So I decided to try and get a quick lap in with a vehicle misfiring, which 
wasn't ideal and not something that we do like to do, but I just needed to get a qualifying lap in. So I managed to get one semi-flying lap, um, obviously only running on four to five cylinders max, um, which has actually put us in second overall, which to be honest, I think was more of a fluke than anything, um, but that was on the last lap and it has got us in a pretty good position to qualify. Obviously, I was thinking initially that we weren't even gonna get a lap in, so I am happy with the result. We've obviously got the car back in. Um, we're gonna look over the data and try and work out what's going on. We're thinking it is just a, a coil. And obviously, because we, we didn't change it, a coil and plug at the same time, it's then found a new plug. So we're probably just as a precaution gonna put a set of six new spark plugs in um, and replace that coil at the front there. And that should be fine for race one. Obviously, we're starting in second next to Tom Lempful, which will be really good. Um, it looks like he's done a really good lap round here. So I think he's gonna be the man to be. Um, James looks like he had some issues. He's back in sixth as well, so we weren't the only one with mechanical issues. Well, I'm absolutely gutted after race one. Um, unfortunately, we had a, had DNF, um, which wasn't what we expected. Um, had a pretty poor start, frustratingly. Um, just hooked up off the line, and it's almost and the car just seemed to kind of bog down, and and then suddenly picked up. So dropped back to about sixth or seventh from my count, um, which wasn't ideal, especially around Cadwell, as we've already discussed, it's a pretty narrow circuit, um, but we had an absolute blinder for about the first four or five laps after that. Um, we managed to pick our way, and by about lap three, I believe, we were out in front, um, and I'd managed to really, really push hard to get some laps in. It then started to, to rain, um, which we kind of expected, so it was pretty slippy, but we were still managing to, to push on and gap the rest, um, which was really, really impressive. Um, and I actually had quite a healthy lead. Now, then we had a, a yellow flag scenario, um, and uh, we were obviously behind a safety car, so I thought, well, okay, I'll stay out there. Um, being behind a safety car, obviously we're only cruising along and I thought I might be able to keep going until the uh, until the yellow flags are lifted. And then hopefully I've only got a lap or two laps left um, to, to win the race, if that makes sense. But unfortunately when the yellow flags uh, lifted, the car was nearly unmanageable driving wise and uh, I put my foot down hard to come out of the corner and the car just wasn't responding. Then all of a sudden I had all power and, and being honest, I. I should have taken more care, just spun round completely. Um, so we, we then lost the lead of the race. Obviously at that point I decided to retire the car, the, had a look under the bonnet and I could see the actual exhaust manifold had snapped completely away from the cylinder head, which is I'm just absolutely gutted about. Um, we had a, a clear lead there and, and I was more than confident that we would have bought it home providing we had no car issues. Um, so we had the pace, um, but unfortunately the, the car let us down on this front and and looking at the damage, it just isn't something that we're going to be able to repair ready for race two. Um, it is pretty significant um, chunk missing out of the exhaust. At the moment, we don't know why it's happened. Obviously, it's very hilly and bumpy here, so I can only assume it's fractured and then just gradually got worse with heat. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those absolutely gutted. That is obviously affected us massively on the championship having two DNFs. Um, I did get the fastest lap time, so I think we'll get a couple of points for that. Um, unfortunately, Mike Seaborn also didn't finish. He, he had a bit of a blinding race as well, so I think he's pretty gutted. Um, he also had a mechanical issue, so he's going to have a DNF, but Tom Lempful did. Um, he came second overall and won, and also James Ram won the race overall, so he's going to be probably 
overtaken us on points now. I'm not sure where we're going to sit with the points because at the end of the season you do drop a couple of rounds so that might level us up. So it's going to be very, very close which is going to put the pressure on for me for the last two rounds um, to get a, a better result again. But it's just so frustrating that we had the pace. Um, I think we had the pace to win both races as well which is really frustrating. Car was feeling absolutely phenomenal but just let us down with a a mechanical failure that that's nothing that we could have predicted just the exhaust manifold has completely failed so that's just racing unfortunately so it's going to be very very tight for championship at the end of the year um but we'll get it repaired and we'll come back stronger hopefully so um yeah i'm going to sit back and, and watch race two and we'll get matthews all prepped ready and fingers crossed he can get a good result mike seaborn he just had a, an absolute blinding race he started from the back of the grid because of his dnf so um he made it right the way through all the way to the front leading his class um he actually had a couple of real big moments and nearly lost it across the grass so lost all the positions and i think he made that back about two or three times it was just absolutely brilliant to watch that car he was really really determined to, to have the win which he did overall in his class so fair play to him he deserved that um james ran one overall just absolutely faultless from the start um and then behind him tom lentful as well so I think Tom Lempfall's obviously added another two uh, wins to his belt, so he's going to still be leading by quite a, a significant points difference overall. Um, Mike's very, very close behind him, so um, I don't think we've got a chance now of winning the championship overall looking at the points, but I know that we've still got a pretty good chance of uh, potentially winning the class um, overall with James. I think I'll now be in second, he'll be in front of him, but at the end of the season you do drop I believe two rounds which may level things up so it'll be really interesting to see where that sits but I know we've really really got to get good results at Snetterton and Mallory which is the final two rounds but it is all to play for um, like I said I don't think we quite can make, meet the uh, the lead overall um, to win the championship unless the results change with Tom and Mike obviously they've got to do well at the last two rounds as well so I think it will reflect on their results but Either way, um, we've still got to keep pushing forward. Um, we've obviously got to get both cars into workshops next week and we need to find the root cause of why my manifold broke. There's got to be a reasoning behind it. It's very rare that you just get a, a component failure. It must be getting stressed from somewhere else. So we need to find out what's going on there um, and then rectify that before we then replace the manifold. We don't want this to happen again. Um, and then we need to be coming out bigger, better, stronger for Snetterton. Well, next week we'll have the same race, but from a different perspective with the number two car from Swallows Racing, driven, of course, by the JDHT's Matthew Davis on next week's episode. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.